Hello, everybody. This is Radio Entrepreneurs. My name is Jeffrey Davis. I'm the host of Radio Entrepreneurs. I'm also CEO and founder of Mage LLC, a management consulting firm, working with leaders and entrepreneurs uh, throughout the United States and Canada. Our next guest, returning guest, uh, Tom McNulty, intellectual property attorney at Landau and Anastasi. Welcome back. Hi, good to see you again. Nice to and, see you uh, again. Lots going on, huh? <laughs> there is a lot going on. Um, today, I thought we would talk about um, contracts that underlie people's intellectual property. Um, I know I've spoken uh, a fair amount about patents and trade secrets and trademarks and the whole nine yards, but we haven't really talked about um, steps you need to take <clears throat> excuse me, in advance to ensure that you are able to get to patent rights or trademark rights or whatnot. Um, so I thought I'd talk about some of the importance of some of the underlying contracts and why it might be a good idea to discuss these sorts of things with uh, an IP attorney as opposed to, um, you know, a general counsel or, or even worse, just pulling forms off the Internet. Um, so looking at patents, one of the things uh, to get patent protection, it has to be something that hasn't been uh, uh, made known to the public. You have to, at the time you file the application, have maintained secrecy of your of your patent. <clears throat> excuse me, of your patentable subject matter. Um, and I think a lot of people maybe overlook some of this when they're in the development phases, the importance of non-disclosure agreements and confidentiality agreements when uh, working with people, when discussing potential um, you know, markets or potential funding or things like that. Um, you know, in the United States, uh, once there's been a public disclosure, and that can be um, you know, public disclosure doesn't mean announcing it to the world. It can be anything as much as an email to a single person that's not covered by a confidentiality obligation. Wow. Um, that's a pretty strong rule. Yes, it certainly can be. Um, and, and it can have disastrous consequences if you if you do something like that. Um, in the United States, once you've made a public disclosure, you have a year to file an application. In the vast majority of the rest of the world, um, you lose rights immediately. Um, so if you've made a disclosure without having gotten an application on file and without having some kind of confidentiality requirement, um, you might well be in trouble. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so like I say, you know, people think of public disclosures as putting a product on the market or making a new product announcement or, you know, things like that, that, that you sort of expect. But a lot of times this will arise when you're discussing it with other people, discussing it with family and friends has been found to, to, um, bar the, uh, the ability to get a patent, um, and certainly discussing it with potential sources of funding, venture capital firms, um, you know, angel investors, things like that. Um, you know, some of them will sign NDAs, uh, some will not. <laughs> um, so it's one of the things you really have to bear in mind. Um, obviously, best practice is to get everybody to sign a, a well-drafted, well-written non-disclosure confidentiality agreement. Um, you know, if you can, you might want to throw in some non-compete language to keep them from taking your idea and using it themselves. Um, to the extent that you can't get somebody to sign it and you still need to have a discussion, you're really kind of limited to either having the discussion in a broad and abstract sense where you're not giving away the, um, you know, the sort of the secret sauce of the invention uh, or get something on file before you have the discussion. Um so those are those are sort of important things that you should be discussing, like I say, with IP counsel. If you're going to try to have a discussion without an NDA and without something on file, maybe run it by uh, your attorney, um, you know, what you intend to say to make sure that you're not giving away uh, the, the patentable bits. <clears throat> 
Um, second thing that comes up uh, a lot with patents is, of course, patent licenses. Um, you know, as an entrepreneur, you may be licensing in technology, you may be licensing out technology. Um, and it's important with these to, to really know what it is that you're looking to get and, and you know, con conferring with somebody, uh, you know, competent in the field to make sure that you do get what you get. Um, typical patent license, um, it can be exclusive, giving you, you know, all rights uh, in the patent, and that effectively becomes a transfer of ownership. It can be exclusive in limited areas, geographical areas, fields of technology, um, that sort of thing, or it can be a non-exclusive license. Um, and if you're looking to use the licensed patent, um, you know, to protect your field and keep people out of it, and you want the ability to enforce it. Um, the, the, the assignment type of license, the full assignment of, uh, of all rights will give you the standing to sue. Uh, exclusive licenses generally will give you standing to sue, but you'll have to join the patent owner as a plaintiff in the suit, which can sometimes be problematic uh, in terms of who's paying for what, who's making decisions on settlement, who's making strategic decisions and the like. Um, and if you don't end up with all exclusive rights, you effectively don't have the right to sue and you're basically subject to the whims of the patent owner um, to, to enforce it or not enforce it as they see fit. <clears throat> um, and one of the important things with this is whatever you term the agreement, if you term it an assignment, if you term it an exclusive license, that doesn't matter. Uh, courts are going to look to what the agreement actually does and doesn't transfer. And uh, there's there's can be some surprising clauses that will will prevent you from obtaining you know full enough rights to to sue. It's not uh, it's not necessarily super cut and dry. Um, so if 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 the patent holder licenses you a patent but retains the right to practice it themselves, um, that will be considered a bare license. You'll have no ability to uh, sue to prevent infringements. Um, if they keep control over your ability to sublicense, retain veto power over, um, you know, infringement uh, settlements or infringement uh, cases, uh, you know, maintain some measure of control over what you can do with the patent that's been held um, to, to transform it into something um, other than a, a full assignment of exclusive rights where, uh, depending on the severity, you'll either have to join the owner or or you won't be able to sue at all. <clears throat> um these sorts of clauses very often arise in university agreements because universities, when they license out their patents, are not generally strictly uh, profit-driven. They're always trying to, you know, do something for the public good. They'll have clauses that you know require um, commercialization within a particular field, that require sub-licensing for you know research or educational purposes, those sorts of things, um, and you know. The universities are certainly doing it with good intention, but they are sometimes effectively keeping you from getting um, the, the rights that it that you're looking for. Um, uh, the other thing that's that's this comes up a lot is you know with startup businesses, small businesses that are being run and driven by the inventor of the the business's kind of concept. Uh, very often, the business owner, the patent owner, will neglect or choose not to assign the patent to the business itself. Um, and that can be problematic in that if, if the business finds that there's somebody out there that uh, is infringing and they wanna try to enforce it, the business may not have any rights in the patent, may not have the ability to do it at all. And it would be up, be up to the owner as an individual um, to go ahead and, and you know, spend the money, spend the time, uh, you know, trying to do the enforcement um, and, you know, at, at some point when the business owner perhaps divests from the company or, or 
the company grows big enough to have a board of directors that are kind of overseeing things, they, you know, it may not be such an easy path to dig out of if that happens. <clears throat> you know, uh, here's my uh, concern, something that uh, you don't say, uh, people don't always look at until afterward. Is there a mediation clause? Is there a litigation clause? Where is it going to be litigated? Who's paying for the litigation? What are the penalties? This to me seems to be an area almost of every contract that people sign that they don't really review close enough. And oh, yeah, I know for me personally, when I look at it as a management consultant, I don't want to be going to Anchorage to litigate. <laughs> <laughs> that is a frequent, uh, a frequent um, kind of way of deterring litigation is, is putting it in a venue that's very inconvenient for one of the parties. Um, but you're right on the arbitration angle, you know, that sort of became a really popular thing. It was touted as being, you know, much cheaper and much faster in the whole nine yards. Um, I've been through an arbitration that had an arbitration clause uh, that called for arbitration in New York City and that had a fee shifting um, provision that whoever the uh, whoever the prevailing party was would get their reasonable attorney's fees. And um, this particular case, uh, the, the damages um, ended up being about ten thousand uh, dollars. But the attorney's fees award ended up being a little bit more than three hundred thousand dollars and and you know, fairly early in the process, the the desire to get those fees was what was really driving uh, the case forward and uh, and preventing it from settling. Um, so sometimes, sometimes little you know uh, uh, minutia, little bits and pieces like that can kind of come back and bite you. Well, as I said, I mean, you could look at something and think, oh, it's so reasonable, and then you realize <laughs> that if something if someone did want to accuse you of something just being accused could make it that you would give in right away because you can't even afford the fight. So you have to exactly. look at what, what's the fight clause. Uh, I find that whole area to be very interesting. And also, again, when you're up against people with deep pockets, it can be a problem, international problems. You tend to cover it all. And that's what I like. <laughs> you cover it during all your interviews. And I think entrepreneurs need to be aware of that. Even in what I would call low-tech businesses, you have to be aware of some of these things. So if someone's looking for you, Tom, and needs more information on internet intellectual property, I can't even pronounce it. Uh, how would they find you? Uh, they can reach me at 617-395-7040, excuse me. <clears throat> or they can um, they can find uh, myself and my firm at www.lalaw.com. LALaw.com. It was a great show. I loved it. And remind everybody, you'll see Tom every month and regularly on all our uh, Radio Entrepreneur sites talking about intellectual property. This is Radio Entrepreneurs.